Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Let me pray as you as you turn there. God, we thank you for your your grace and your power. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide us as we walk through the holy scriptures, that you would give us wisdom that you would allow our hearts to behold the man, Jesus. We pray that you would show us what we really are, that we are imperfect, and that we are in need of your forgiveness. And at the same time, might you empower us to go to be faithful as your witnesses, Thank you that you choose to use us. Please minister to us this morning, Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, I want to take the opportunity to walk through this this encounter of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Um, And there's a particular reason I want to use this this passage and um, teach on, on this topic. Uh, later in the summer, uh, we know that we're ending Romans here soon, and some of the things that we'll be walking through are an attempt to equip the body in evangelism and how to share our faith, take the things that we, that we learn and that we um, know about Jesus and share those things with uh, friends, with relatives, and with Co-workers, whoever it might be that we're that we're encountering. Now, most Christians know and that they should be witnessing, right? All of us know that it's a responsibility that we have as a follower of Jesus, if we have chosen to follow Him, that we should be sharing Him with others, His goodness, His salvation, His forgiveness of our sins. But often the difficulty is knowing how do we do that. How do we share our faith? And I, Nick didn't say, Kevin, you should preach this one. That wasn't it. it wasn't, I, I'm not the local expert in any way. And so I pray that God's word would give us, give us insight this morning. Um, but it is a hard thing. It is a very hard thing. I want to read to you uh, uh, the story of one writer who wrote a book called um, How to Give Away Your Faith. A number of years ago, and this is a story of of his experience. About once every six months, as a young believer, the pressure to witness used to reach explosive levels inside me. Notice he says, pressure. Not knowing any better, I would suddenly lunge at someone and spout scripture verses with a sort of glazed stare in my eye. I honestly didn't expect any response. As soon as my victim indicated a lack of interest... I'd begin to edge away with a sigh of relief, and I'd breathe the consoling thought, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But duty done, I'd draw back into my martyr's shell for another six months hibernation, until the internal pressure again became intolerable and drove me out. It really shocked me when I finally realized that I, not the cross, was offending people. My inept, unwittingly rude, even stupid approach to them was responsible for their rejection of me and the gospel message. 
We all probably feel that way sometimes, don't we, after we witness like an utter failure? And then, like this person, many times it drives us into our own shell. And we wait until the conviction hits again and we're forced out, so to speak. So what I want to look at this morning is how did Jesus testify to who he was? How did he share about his faith, so to speak? How did he share about who he was and, and is? And, of course, I don't want you to think this morning that I'm going to cover every aspect of what evangelism is. Specifically, this, this teaching, this encounter with the Samaritan woman, I think, is practical for us when we're considering, how do I witness and share my faith with someone that I'm encountering on a regular basis? Now, there are going to be other encounters that you have where you have the opportunity to witness, and you should. The Holy Spirit will prompt you and tell you to share your faith in some way with the person at the grocery store, with, with a, a random individual, and that, that might not be specifically what I'm talking about, what we're talking about here. I won't cover everything, but hopefully this will be encouraging to us, and hopefully it will equip us in some way for, for the people we're encountering on a regular basis and have the opportunity to share the truth of Christ. So I want to begin this morning with looking at verses 4 through 6 of John chapter 4. And as we jump into these verses, I want you to, want you to see one thing about the context, something that was so eye-opening to me this week that many of you probably already are aware of. You know, John chapter 4 follows John chapter 3. Isn't that incredible? John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman, follows Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And so what we have laid side by side that scholars agree John has done very intentionally is we have two conversations, one between Jesus and Nicodemus and then one between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. These two people that Jesus is encountering and having a conversation with, they couldn't be more opposite of one another. Nicodemus is a strict religious Jew who's trying to earn salvation and please God by following the law. The Samaritan woman, on the other hand, first, she's engaging in false worship because she's not a Jew. But then also, she's a completely immoral woman. So they're very different. But here's the similarity. They both need Jesus. And Jesus will engage them both about who he is and what needs to happen in their lives. Here's the other contrast. It's that Jesus doesn't speak to the Samaritan woman in the exact same way that he speaks to Nicodemus. You know why? Because Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are not the same people. Because they are completely different. And here's the beautiful thing about who Jesus is and how he teaches us to share about who he is. Is that we don't share with every single person in the exact same way. Because people are different. And in caring for people, we need to share in a way that we're extending care for that particular person. And that's what Jesus does with Nicodemus and with the Samaritan woman. He says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And to the Samaritan woman, 
He points out that she's living in sin with her five husbands. So there's an immediate application with this comparison between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. They both need Jesus, but they need to hear about him, who he is in different ways, because they're different people. And this is who Jesus is in the incarnation. He comes to us as man, God as man, and shares with us and meets us where we are. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Uh, 3 through 6, Jesus left Judea, departed again for Galilee, but he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You see, verses 4 through 6 set the stage for the scene that's going to follow. On his route to Galilee, Jesus would have had to pass through Samaria. It was really an unfortunate reality for any pious Jew that the shortest route to Galilee was through Samaria. Some extremely pious Jews would probably even go around Samaria, take the longer route, so that they didn't have to encounter any Samaritans. And I hope you'll be reminded from last week's sermon in Ezra that there was this historical schism between the Jews and the Samaritans because Jews rightly viewed the people as people of false worship, as idolaters. They were former Jews who married into the foreign nations while still claiming to worship Yahweh, but they adopted the gods of the nations. So we, as we approach this encounter and this conversation, we're in a Samaritan village. We're not a place that you'd expect to find a strict Jew hanging out in the middle of the day. But also, it's about the sixth hour, which is about noon. And it's not the time you'd expect to find a person coming to a well to draw water. In fact, it's the time that you would expect people to be taking a midday rest from their labor. Some other details that John gives us that he evidently thinks are important for us to understand as we engage with this story. It's a village lying close to a plot of land associated with God's people from the very beginning. Did you notice that? It was a town called Sychar near the field Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. You know, for those of you who have family land, property that's been associated with your family for a number of years, you might have a sense of the feeling that comes along with living on this somewhat sacred ground. When you, when you stand on this ground, it connects you with people from hundreds of years ago, family members that you might have never met, but you've heard stories about. You see, this is how the Samaritans felt about their land that was near Jacob's well. For them, it was a sense of assurance that God had blessed them because they're near near the well that Jacob dug years and years before. So these Samaritans probably would have had a sense of even pride that Jacob's well was there. It connects them with the patriarchs of Israel, the fathers of the nation. So this is where Jesus is resting for a moment. So verses... 7 through 15 will be the beginning of the conversation. And here's the main aspect of verses 7 through 15 that I want us to see is that Jesus cares for every person uniquely. Jesus cares for every person uniquely. Let's read verses 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. We see in this conversation that Jesus cares for every person in a a unique way. And the first way he does this in this particular case is that he ignores the social and religious boundaries in order to engage this woman. You know, verse 9 When it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, actually what that probably means is that Jews will not use the same dish that a Samaritan would use. You see, this is the the dish that this, this very woman, as we know later that Jesus is already aware of, that she uses in her home. Her home with the man that she's having an affair with. And Jesus says... Will you give me a drink of water? You know, it's really not that Jesus shares his identity as Messiah. That's not what is so audacious about this passage, that he shares who he is. Although that's, that's a big deal. The really big deal here is that Jesus asked her for a drink of water. That he asked a Samaritan woman, an immoral, unclean Samaritan woman, to give him a drink of water. It's not a polite exchange of business. It's not a casual, accidental encounter. And both of these would be inappropriate for a Jew. But this is intimate. Jesus will cross the social boundary and use this very bucket that she uses in her home with her boyfriend. How can a Jew... Ask a Samaritan woman for water. You see, this is what's incredible here. It's not Jesus who launches the conversation to a deeper level, to like the witnessing level. It's not even Jesus. It's the Samaritan woman who does that. She says, how can you ask for water from a Samaritan woman? So here's here's the application that we see. That Jesus is so different, so drastically different from any other Jew, from any other human being, that he is willing to cross that social, religious, boundary, law, in order to care for this individual. He says, that doesn't matter so much as caring for this person. Caring for this person. And so... If we follow Jesus, what that means is that our lives are changed at such a foundational level that even the most basic of actions for us in conversations can turn into something much deeper. Much deeper. So here are a couple of examples. 
you go to eat someone with someone and have a horrible experience with the waiter, waitress. The person's not a believer or whatever. And, and you still leave a generous tip. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying you happen to. The Lord leads you to do it. And someone says when you leave, why were you so generous to that waiter when she did a horrible job? And you can respond because God has been so generous to me when I wasn't at all good. It's simple. You, you, you just tip rightly, even though that person wasn't kind and wasn't helpful to you. It's basic. And someone, why do you even do that? They were ridiculous. They didn't, they didn't even tend to you well. But, well, I've been tending to well when I didn't do anything good. It's basic. But what about, why did you give to the beggar? You know he's just going to go spend it on alcohol. I'm not saying you have to give to every beggar. But... Someone asks you, why did you give to the beggar? You know they're just going to waste the money. Well, God's given to me when I haven't deserved it. How can you forgive so easily when people hurt you? Why don't you get more angry about things? You know, these are, these are just basic life situations. How do you just forgive people even when they cross you? Well, because I've been forgiven. How do you not get just angry and enraged when people cross you? Maybe it's, you know, on the road. <laughs> Uh, someone in the church recently was talking with a, a group of guys about how his job is extremely stressful and he's managing a group of people. And one of the people in the office came up to him recently and asked him, how do you not become an alcoholic? <laughs> and it was a perfect opportunity. He said, I pray. I pray. You see, this is what happens here. It, it's so natural for Jesus because he's so different. But he just says, Give me a drink of water. And then it launches into this deeper conversation where the woman's like, how can you, a Jew, ask for a drink of water from a Samaritan? And so I want to ask you, friend, is is your life changed at such a foundational level by Jesus, by following him, that you literally are salt and light where you live and where you work and where you play? To where people literally do just ask questions. How, how do you do that? Why do you raise your family differently? Why are Sundays, why are Sundays such a special day for you and your family? Because worship is important to us and we want to gather with God's people. These are, these are just basic things, but they launch us into deeper levels of conversation with people. You know, another level of application here is, you know, some of us sharing the gospel, for some of us sharing the gospel is really the easy thing to do. You want me to regurgitate some uh, prearranged, meditated plan? Sure. I can, I can spout it out. But the hard thing is to actually cross that social boundary of engaging with people where they are. You see, Jesus didn't spout off the gospel as soon as he saw her. He asked her for a drink of water. And for some of us, that's really difficult. Going to eat in the home of an immoral person. People know them to be immoral. That would be really difficult for some of us because we would wonder, what will so-and-so think? Will they judge me? I wonder who the Samaritan woman is in my life and in your life. The person you would really have trouble asking for water and engaging on this level. Again, it is an intimate level. He's going to drink from her bucket. You know, I think all of us struggle with this relational tension, so to speak, in some form. 
on one extreme are those of us who are really, we're too fearful of being polluted by the world, so we resist becoming intimate with unbelievers. We believe God's called us to holiness, and, I'm, and if I get around that too much, it's going to like rub off on me. I'm going to catch it. You know, growing up, there was this idea that we could somehow lose our witness by being in a place with unbelievers, and maybe if there was alcohol on the table, someone would see us and we would lose our witness. You know, we, we end up not living where unbelievers live, gathering where they gather, because we're just being careful. We want to be holy. But friends, we need to see that Jesus, he didn't isolate himself from immorality. In fact, if a person could catch sin, Jesus would have caught it. He gathered with publicans and sinners, and he was even accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was so close with them. You know, I realize Christians are called to holiness, but we really need to be careful how we use that as an excuse as an excuse to avoid the world and its dirtiness. That's one extreme. But on the other extreme, and let's make sure we see there are both, that on the other extreme are those of us who we really can't handle temptation when we do get around unbelievers. We cross moral lines. We fall into the drunkenness of the crowd, the sexual immorality, the gossip, or whatever it may be. And friends, if we're in this group this morning, we really need to own our faith. We need to know our own personal boundaries. And we need to stop showing the gospel to be weak in our lives. Jesus, somehow, just being God in flesh, was able to be with unbelievers. And I don't mean just like out in society. I mean with them, in their homes, eating with them at their table, was able to be with them, but at the same time was able to maintain perfect integrity and faithfulness to God. But the religious people, he still ticked off. And so in engaging with people and in ministering to people, this is part of what we do, regardless of which side we're on, which extreme. We really need to repent and we need to follow Jesus. Are you getting with the unbelievers so much and you just can't handle it and so you fall, you cross the moral lines, then let's repent and let's turn to Christ and let's follow Him faithfully. Or are you so... Wanting to be so holy that sometimes you won't even get around them. You won't go in their home. And that's wrong as well. It's just as wrong. And so let's repent. Let's follow Christ. Jesus uniquely cared for people so that if he had to cross the religious or the social boundary, he did it. And surely, friends, we'll have to do that as well. The next thing Jesus does to uniquely care for this woman is that he uses her language to explain spiritual reality. He uses her language to explain spiritual reality. These are verses 10 through 15. We looked at these, read these already. But Jesus introduces, after she asks, you know, how do you do this? How do you drink from this cup that I use? Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know, living water in a literal sense, for this woman, it would immediately brought to her mind a running spring. Not necessarily a well, but a spring that water is running. But water in such a dry, arid region such as this, and many of you are aware of this, 
it easily doubles at a metaphor, as a metaphor for life itself. You see, with, without water in times of drought, these people's very lives are, are, are literally threatened. And if it's not their very lives, at least their crops and their livestock. So the very fact that this, this well, this well is functioning. She, remember, the Samaritans are close to the, Jacob's well. And the fact that this well was still functioning after hundreds and hundreds of years of being used would have been seen to them as a way of God blessing them and showing them favor. And this is the reason she asked in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? The question she's essentially asking is, Can you provide life longer than Jacob himself has sustained us with life? Can you provide us a well that can last longer than this well that Jacob dug? You see, they, they see themselves, in a sense, already blessed by God. Obviously, the woman doesn't completely grasp the parallel Jesus is drawing for her. As we see from her question in verse 15, Sir, give me this water you're talking about so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She's still thinking that Jesus is speaking on a physical level about water. We later see in John, John chapter 7, 38 through 39, that what Jesus is actually talking about when he speaks about living water is he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. It says in these verses, Let the one who believes in me drink, just as the scripture says, for within him will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So Jesus is speaking a depth of truth, a very deep truth. But at the same time, friends, and see this, he, he's conveying it to her on her own terms. Living water. She needs water to live. And so Jesus is saying, following me is like a stream that never ends. It's like it, it never ceases to be refreshing and satisfying. Again, as we said at the beginning, he didn't explain it in the same way that he explained it to Nicodemus. You know, he could have said, you need to be born again. But he didn't just rehearse the same evangelistic plan that he used before. He chose to use something different. He didn't use jargon. He didn't use a language that she would have to learn the definitions for before she could ever understand it. I, th- I think a sense of what he's doing here, he's using language she understands and it's a, it's a metaphor and eventually she'll be able to, to catch it. You know, and I think about some redneck saying we used growing up. It, it, one like, that dog don't hunt. You know, I, I know what it means for a dog to hunt, but it takes me a minute in the context to be able to figure out, I don't see a dog hunting. I don't, oh, you're talking, okay, I got it. And then and Mr. Al likes to use the phrase being out in the broccoli, a broccoli patch. And, and I For a minute, you know, I'm like, okay, out in the broccoli, out in the broccoli, we're talking about this. Oh, okay. So it takes a minute to to process those things. And Jesus is using a saying that it would have made sense to her. It's water flowing. But this is the nature of spiritual truth, isn't it? It takes a while to process. So it's not new definitions. It's just, it's a metaphor that takes a little while to be able to understand. And here's the point. I want to make here, and I think this is what Jesus is illustrating for us, a principle that he's laying out. When we present the gospel to people, 
we don't need to have to make them learn definitions before they can begin to follow Jesus. Like, we don't need to go up to them and say, uh, you need to be regenerated and justified so that you can be sanctified and then one day you can be glorified. Right? No. That's, that's not the way we share faith. You know, from the beginning, this Christianity has been something that where they went to people and tried to share with people in a way that they could understand. This is the very idea of the incarnation, friends, that, that, that Jesus came to man so that man could understand him and see him. Now, of course, I'm not negating the power of the Holy Spirit here, but he was sharing in a way that they could grasp in a sense. You know the, the word Savior in the first century? For anyone who wanted to, or they were witnessing to, they would talk about Jesus as Savior. You know people had a category for this, to be able to think about this? Because anybody who lived in the first century knew that when a Roman emperor came into power, that emperor was the Savior who would bring peace and prosperity to the land. And so when Christians would say, Jesus is the Savior, essentially what they're saying is, this is the one who brings true peace and true prosperity. When I think about this, I think about a few of the buzzwords that were used in the 2008 election. And I was looking at some posters last, last night online. It was a picture of a man, and under the man's silhouette was the word hope. And another one was the word change. In a man, there is hope. And in a man, there is change. The hope for change. And what we do, friends, what we do as Christians now is we go to people and we say, you know, true hope is only found in Christ. You know, true change is only found in Christ. And what we're doing at that time is we're pointing out people's idols. People who expect that a man can satisfy all their needs. Maybe it's money that's an idol. And you say, you know, true joy and true satisfaction is only found in Christ. Whatever it may be, as we, we go to people, we look at the things that they're placing, their hope and their everything that they have, they're longing for, and we say to them, you know, Christ is the satisfaction for that. And this is what Jesus does with this woman. She needs water to live. And he says, you know, I can give you lasting water. Water that will never run dry. And so he speaks to her in spiritual truth, but on a level that she can, in a sense, understand. And then, as we continue going in verses 16 through 19, I want you to see here that Jesus speaks to the brokenness to every person. And this is how he transitions and really helps her. You want this water? You want this water that I can give? And this is where he addresses it. He speaks to her brokenness. Verses 16 through 19, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's stop there for just a moment. The first thing that Jesus speaks to in her brokenness is her brokenness over personal sin. 
her brokenness over personal sin. You know, Nicodemus, he, he was a, a good man, but his own goodness prevented him from being able to see that he really needed to be reborn through the Holy Spirit to enter God's kingdom. And, and this woman, her brokenness is different, it's more visible, but it's no less in need of God or no more in need of God than the religious Nicodemus. So in one sense, when Jesus says, go call your husband, what he's saying is that this is where we have to start. You want living water? This is where we have to start. And this woman, she had so much relational turmoil, so much baggage that she doesn't know which way is up anymore. Only three marriages were allowed in Jewish law. And, and a civil marriage would not be recognized by any of the people who were of her faith. And so with the many marriages she's found, she she also found herself abandoned by society, likely by her entire family. And this is what explains that she's coming to the well at noon when no one else would come. So at least five times she's tried and failed to find satisfaction from a relationship. Each time failed. And here comes a man who knows her sin, a Jew who knows her sin, But the very fact that he's asked her for a drink and is still sitting there speaking with her is proof enough that while he's calling her out, he's not condemning her. This is the beauty of what Jesus does when he speaks to us in our brokenness. This is the beauty of what he does and what we do when we share faith with people. Jesus has called out our sin But he also said a bruised reed he will not break. And so when he calls out our sin, he doesn't condemn us. But he invites us into relationship with him through forgiveness. And so he he does call out her sin. He calls out this brokenness. But he doesn't condemn. And so the woman, she she stays around for a moment. (laughs) You know, this is where we as sinners, sinners just like any other person will witness to really have to be careful when we're speaking to people because we do we do need to call out sin it'll look different than Jesus did we can't we don't know exactly what's going on in people's worlds but we need to help people see that they're sinners and it's not just about their outward actions no matter how good they feel but it's about their heart That rebellion against God isn't some isolated experience that just a few of us have gone through that we all need to be made right with God. This is where Jesus meets people's needs, friends. All people are broken. All people are broken. And this is how we share Christ as we point to brokenness, the need of salvation, of redemption, of help. And so... Jesus, He speaks to the brokenness of every person. He speaks to her about her personal sin and her need for help. But He doesn't just condemn her. Somehow He maintains a gentleness that allow, that she even stays around for a moment. And then He also speaks to her brokenness because of just confusion. Her, her brokenness because of false worship in her life and confusion over what's right. This is verses 19 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, Jesus says. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. You know, the woman, she believed the crucial question. The crucial question was the right location of worship. Is it Mount Gerizim or is it Mount Zion? This is the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is the hot topic. And so this is what she asked about. And there are kind of three stages to how Jesus responds to this question. First of all, he kind of lessens the importance of the question. Again, it's, it's a hot topic for these people. And so Jesus initially responds with, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He points to eternity and to what's coming even in his presence that location really doesn't amount to much. But immediately after that, He does give some validity to her question. And he answers the debate between Jews and Samaritans by saying that the Jews worship God rightly. He says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It sounds so harsh, but what Jesus is saying is that the Samaritans have neglected a whole part of the Old Testament of how God revealed himself through the prophets. The Samaritans decided that only the first five books were the books that were to be used. And so Jesus says, you you do not know what you worship. Jews worship rightly. But then again, he goes back and says, the hour's coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So, What Jesus closes with is this urgency of proper worship. Today is the day. The hour is coming. He repeats what he said before, but then says, it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, we only worship the Father through the Holy Spirit, and we worship Him according to who He really is. And the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Well, what... what principles do we find Jesus applying here? Here's what I think we see. That while people's questions might not be primary, she asks a question and Jesus says, there's something bigger than that. It's not about location. So it's not primary. But he does go back to her question. And so In a sense, Jesus is saying some questions are are still worthy of a response. Some questions are not, of course. We had a professor at seminary that any time there was a a talk afterwards, the students would have an opportunity to ask questions. And he would begin that time by saying, many of you have been told that there are no stupid questions. That's not right. (laughs) 
He say, turn to your neighbor and ask them if your question is stupid, and then you can come up. So, this woman asks a question, and while Jesus does show her, this is not the most important question you need to ask. Because the hour is coming when it's not this mountain or that mountain. It's, it's to worship God in spirit and truth. But he still, he still answers her question. And so I think, friends, as we're engaging people and sharing Christ with people, we're going to encounter questions. So many questions. What about evolution? Haven't they proved this? Whatever. They're going to encounter so many questions. And not that we'll be able to answer every single question, but sometimes we just dismiss people because of their questions. And Jesus doesn't dismiss her because of her question, but points her to the greater truth that true worshipers worship God in spirit and truth. So we... As we encounter people, maybe we can point them to greater truth. You know, not all questions are ever going to be answered. But we will all encounter God one day. And so maybe that's a truth that we point them to. And as they ask questions, we say, you know what, I don't know the answer, but I'd really like to talk with you more. I'd really like to try to go find the answer to that. You see, that's serving people where they are, and that's exactly what Jesus does with this woman. We're not all-knowing, and so we will have to go look up answers sometimes to try to care for people and love people and try to show them who Christ is. We will have to go look up answers. And if you care enough about people and their salvation, then you will seek those things. Seek to do that. Again, some questions aren't necessarily worthy of an answer. They're just an attempt to avoid dealing with your sin. And you will have to walk with the Spirit in those times. Let me close with this. Verses 27 through 29. Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, and no one, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into a town, and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I know many of you are using ESV this morning. I want to point out this because it's very important. In verse 9, when it's translated, can this be the Christ, the actual translation is a negative. The woman actually says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? The woman is going back to her Samaritan village. She's just encountered a Jew claiming to be the Messiah. This would have been shocking for them. This would have turned their world upside down. And so the woman goes back. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? She's still processing, friends. She's still asking the question. She's still thinking through, is this man who just told me everything, is he the one? who's coming to save us? Is this Jew who just spoke to me, is he the one who's coming to save us? Did Jesus fail in his evangelistic presentation? 
I mean, did he not? Why didn't he invite her to say the prayer? Could he have been more winsome? Could he have been less accusatory? Could he have harped on her sin a bit more, drawing out more guilt and invited her to pray then, nailing it down? You know, if we're, if we're looking for a, a Billy Graham here, a success rate, we'd almost be disappointed. This woman, she does leave her water jar. It's emphasizing that she's excited that something has happened to her. And she goes back to her town sharing about it to the extent that her town is going to encounter Jesus and many of them will believe in Him. But what we see from this woman is that there's still a sense in which she's really trying to process, is this Jesus? Is He really the Christ? The Messiah? And I think this is really where this challenges us as followers of Christ. That our responsibility in going to people and sharing Christ with people is not to make them make a decision right then and there, but it's to point them to Jesus. Yes, Jesus urges her. He points out the urgency. He says, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in, in spirit and truth. The hour is coming and is now here. Yes, we emphasize urgency and we say you must turn to Christ. But friends, we never see Jesus stuffing it down someone's throat. We never see Jesus trying to force them. But what we do see Jesus doing is we see Him caring for her uniquely loving her as a woman of Samaria, a woman who is in deep sin. And we see Him speaking to her brokenness and then pointing her to who He is. And so, Christians, may we leave seeking to be more faithful in following Jesus and with that faithful in sharing Him with others. Again, I want to ask you, has your life changed at such a foundational level that people begin to ask you, what's going on? Why do you do that? And then for those of us in here who have not trusted Christ, friends, Jesus knows your heart just like He knew the Samaritan woman. And He cares for you just like He cares for the Samaritan, cared for the Samaritan woman. Are you living in sin? Are you broken? Do you find yourself in this vicious just spiral, a cycle of turning to one sin after the other, trying to find satisfaction? Do you know that Jesus will give you satisfaction? He will satisfy the longing of your soul. He will give you peace and He'll give you hope. And it won't be just for now, but it will be for eternity. He will. Will you come to Christ now? Will you come to Christ this morning? And if you're still asking questions, keep asking. This could be the Messiah. Let's pray.